Supper. John 14, verses 12 through 17 is where we will be focusing our attention this morning. Let me read that text for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So help me God. Those four words have been a staple of American oath-taking since 1789. It wasn't required by law, but George Washington, when he was first sworn into office, added those four words to the end of his oath, and ever since then, every president of the United States since has used the same words. And you naturally understand why. You think of the responsibilities and the pressures of public office like being a president, and then you say you're going to do this and you're going to do that. The only way to end that is to say, God help me. In fact, those same four words are used in a variety of circumstances for weighty positions. Anytime you serve on a jury, you are normally encouraged to say those words as someone's life may be in your hands. Even a notary public is supposed to say those words before they take on their office. Soldiers in any branch of the American military say those words when they take their oath. Naturally so. There's just some things that are so heavy and so weighty that you're like, I can't do it unless God in some way intervenes. But I think, though, that it seems that this historic phrase should accompany more than just these public offices. We have a whole host of other responsibilities as well that when we stare at them squarely, we think God must help us. We need some divine uh, assistance. Uh, some of the roles that, that God has entrusted to us just seem so weighty, so heavy, from the youngest of us to the oldest. I think of the pressure that many a student feels even in this gathering today as they, at the least prepared time of their life, have to make some of the most important decisions of their life. They have to choose where they're going to go to college, potentially who they're going to marry, and where they're going to work. I mean, some of the most life-altering decisions uh, when they haven't even like paid a good full round of taxes yet. They need help. Students need God's help. I think of singles in our church weighing out the what seems to be eternally significant, but it's actually only life-significant 
decision of who they're going to marry. The weight is heavy. And now with stuff like social media, the options seem endless. It's harder than ever for that kind of decision to be made. And so they would cry out, so help me God. Marriage is no walk in the park either. Sure, you've got six months of honeymoon and everything's going great, but then the real marriage begins and you're just like, God, intervene please. I'm supposed to do this for the rest of my life? (laughs) It's hard. Maybe your marriage is in one of those points where you're just thinking, I need help. Parenting's that because now you're entrusted with another soul or multiple souls. And you feel responsible for them. And that's one of those times where you're crying out, it's not just the president that needs divine help. It is me in this parenting role, in my career, as I make decisions about retirement, as I care for aging parents. We face all of these situations where we be like, yes, Lord, please, some divine assistance would be fantastic. But it's not only those roles that overwhelm us. We've neglected our most important role as a gathered church, and that is following in the footsteps of Jesus. I mean, surely that needs some divine assistance. We're supposed to be representing him and advancing his interest in his absence. How in the world is anybody going to be able to do that effectively without the help of God? And that gets you. If you can understand that tension, that insufficiency, if you can feel that weight, you are sitting squarely where the disciples of Jesus were sitting when they received these words. Do you remember the context? Jesus has spent the last few moments with them telling them that I'm gone, I am leaving, I'm going to die, I'm going to depart, it's going to be on you. And he's trying to comfort them in that. I mean, you know the pressure of having something entrusted to you, especially when the person who entrusted it to you is going to take off? (laughs) Uh, People call it the apprenticeship square, right? You know it. Like anytime you're trying to train somebody to do something, just imagine a square for a second. The first step is I do, you watch. The second step is I do, you help. Then it turns a corner. Now all of a sudden, it's you do, I help, and then the last step is you do, I watch, and then you're done. (laughs) There's that moment where, where somebody entrusted something to us, and it went from the I to the you, from them to us, and now it's like, oh, we're in charge of this thing now? That's exactly what they're feeling like. The the mission of Jesus is being turned over to them, and he's saying, I will not be physically present with you. And that was a scary prospect, to say the least. As the sun sets on Jesus' earthly ministry, the encroaching darkness is driving them to despair. And so Jesus assures them. That's what this whole upper room discourse is about. Assurances from Jesus that all will be well. Even in my absence, it will be okay. So far, he has assured them that there is a place prepared. Hey, I'm going to be gone, but it's okay. You're going to be all right because I'm preparing a better place for you. He's assured them on the basis also of a way made. Like even if something happens between the time that I come to get you and bring you to this place, you already know the way to the Father. You've trusted in me. 
place prepared, way made. And then another one, because one of the disciples wedged in what seemed to be an odd question, a third assurance, the Father known. He was like, look, we feel okay if you would just show us who God is. If you would just give us a divine appearance of God, all would be well. And Jesus says to them, you already know the Father. You've seen me. You've got all you need. He's assuring them. And those assurances continue into these verses. And these assurances are for all of us here, every one of you. Whether you're, listen to me, whether you're in Christ or out of Christ, these assurances are for you. You say, how? If I'm not in Jesus, if I'm not even a Christian, how are these assurances for me? You need to understand something. John is an evangelistic book. He's writing ahead of time to tell you what the experience of following Jesus is going to be like. And if you are contemplating, like, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could faithfully follow Jesus. The upper room discourse assures you that if you would trust in him by faith, these promises would be yours as well. So it's for those who are out of Christ, but also it's for those who are in Christ. Like you're starting to feel the weight, you're starting to feel the pressure, and this is Jesus' blessed reminder that all is well, particularly in these verses today. We will have disclosed for us two more assurances for following Jesus in his absence. Two assurances, two helps, if you will. First one is effective service through prayer. He assures us with the promise, the assurance of effective service through prayer. You'll see that in verses 12 to 14. And then the second one that you'll note, so just so we can make this really simple for us all today, is the empowerment of the Spirit. The empowerment of the Spirit. So let's look at these two and apply them to our hearts and lives as we study this text freshly together. First of all, notice again in verse 12, Jesus makes that weighty statement that draws our attention to what he says as being something that is true. You can take it to the bank. It's almost like a a solemn oath. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Anybody seeing any problems here? Is anybody scratching their head a little bit? Notice firstly, who? Who? Who is he talking about here? He says that we will all do these works. Everyone who believes in Jesus. Not a few. Not the extraordinarily gifted Not the occasional, but everyone who believes in Jesus will do the works that I do. That just doesn't seem right. Do you know anybody? I mean, anybody, not even in this room, I'm talking about on the planet right now, who is doing the works of Jesus Forget the planet right now. The planet ever. Has anyone on the planet ever done the works that Jesus has done? 
We'd be tempted to think, well, this is a distressing moment for our Lord. Maybe he's over-speaking a little bit. We'll cut him a break. If I knew I was going to die in the next 12 hours, maybe I'd miss step two. But that's not what's going on with our perfect Lord. He means what he says. Everyone who believes will do these works. The question, though, for us is what are the works of Jesus? What are the works of Jesus? Hang with me. I put the most mentally strenuous stuff up front. What are these works? The works of Jesus, as defined in the Gospel of John, are none other than those things that preview and identify God's rescuing of the world through His Son. I'm going to say that again. It's really important. I'll say it a bunch of other times. Jesus' works are those acts that previewed and identified God's rescuing of the world through His Son. We see that even in the context. Look in verses 10 and 11 again. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works, right? Like, you got to let the author define his terms. Here he is talking about works. Well, what are those works? Notice verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. What were Jesus' works doing? What, what was their point? They were these acts that he would do that would reveal the Father and his desire to save through Jesus. Like, that's what he was up to. It wasn't just his miraculous things. Everything Jesus did was pointing to the fact that God had decided to enter into this world and provide rescue through his Son. That's why in other passages they're called signs. Friends, signs point to something. They're not destinations. There's something that point to a greater significance. What have been the point of all of Jesus' signs? They've been to point to Him as the one from God, providing salvation that only God Himself could provide. So what about all these miracles? Well, think about the feeding of the 5,000, for example. It showed Him to be God. What did that work do? It showed Jesus to be God. Divine provision comes through Jesus. That's what that work did. Let's take another Turning water into wine, it showed him to be God. Divine joy comes through Jesus. That was the whole point. I didn't preach it any differently. The third, healing the sick, the lame, the blind. It showed him to be God. Divine healing comes through Jesus. What about raising Lazarus from the dead? It showed him to be God. Divine life comes through Jesus. Are you getting the point? He's saying that whatever God is doing to bring about salvation is coming through his son who is Jesus. That was the works. It was pointing back to God. The works of Jesus point back to God and his salvation breaking in through his son. So, I say it again. Jesus now here assures all of his frightened followers that all who are trusting in him, believing in him, will continue doing works that effectively showcase God's salvation in Christ. Hear me, friends. If you're in Jesus, if you're trusting in him, you will be doing things that point to God's rescue in Jesus. It's what your life is about now if you're really in Jesus. That's the work that you're up to. 
You can't say that you trust in Jesus and not give a rip about what God looks like in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is now your job. You have been called into the glorious service of giving glory to God through His Son for the salvation that He provided through His death, burial, and resurrection. That's what we all do. It's not just about miracles and signs. If you want confirmation of this, you need to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 11, where Paul makes it crystal clear that the Spirit will give different kinds of gifts to different people. And listen to this. Some of them in that apostolic age would be gifts of miracles. Some of them would be gifts of healing. But he makes it really clear, not everybody's going to have these gifts. So I just want you to know that even the apostles didn't interpret this as saying, oh, well, we're all going to be walking on water, feeding thousands of people, and bringing folks back from the dead. That is not what was going on in John chapter 14. What he is saying is that just as everything I did pointed to God working in me, providing salvation, so also everything you do will do the same. You get to play a part in this amazing thing that I'm doing. That's awesome. That is comforting. Jesus' works point to God's salvation provided in him, and so also we get to work in ways that point to God's salvation provided in Jesus. Every Christian lives a life that points to divine salvation through Jesus. And to what extent do we do this? To what extent will we be effective in this enterprise of doing these works? Because I'm sure there's a lot of you in this room who would think, Well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best, and I don't know how it's turning out. Well, uh, Jesus goes on to say, (laughs) as if the first part wasn't hard enough, um, you're going to do the works that I do, and notice this, and greater works than these will he do. Man, if it wasn't hard enough, then he has to go and say that. If nobody could do those in the first place, like how would anybody do greater than Jesus? How does it get any greater than the miraculous molecular reconstruction of ordinary water into extraordinary wine? How does it get greater than dead limbs and malformed eyes pulsing with life and light again? What could be greater than a precious child spared from a premature death? What's greater than a four-day dead loved one escaping from the grave and out again among the living? The answer to this question lies in the meaning of the word greater. Greater. After all, friends, even in our English language, something can be greater in quantity. Um, not a geography expert, but I would say that Lake Superior is greater than Lake Erie. Size, you know, greater means in that case size, quantity. Um, it could be greater in quality. I think of 500 thread count sheets versus 2,000 thread count sheets. Sandpaper smooth. There's a difference between the two. It's a better quality. 
Or greater sometimes means effect. Think of what's more effective, um, regular sleep or drinking Monster and Red Bull. A back surgery or maintaining proper health and exercise in your younger years. I mean, like, one's greater than the other in effect. Greater simply means, and this is the dictionary definition. I'm not talking a Greek dictionary. I'm just talking the good old-fashioned Benjamin Franklin American Dictionary. Greater means it exceeds the average. That's all it means. It exceeds the average. So we have to ask the question. It exceeds the average what? The average, and when Jesus here says greater works, it exceeds the average. Exceeds the quality of his works, the quantity of his works, or the effect of his works. That, that's the question before us. Let's explore all three of those real quick. What if he's saying that by greater here, we're going to do greater works, we're going to do greater in quality? Well, friends, that means that no one ever on the planet has ever done anything like that. Jesus' followers then and now have never overridden the natural order to the degree that Jesus himself did in the first century. Nobody's ever done that. You can watch TBN all you want to, and nobody will be doing anything like what Jesus has done in the Gospels. So it's it's probably not that. What about uh, quantity? Some people like this approach. They're like, oh, oh, well, it's just they're going to do more works. And if you took like the net result of all the miraculous works that get done around the planet and add it up, it exceeds, you know, like the number of Jesus. I, I don't know how this works. I think like you would need a point system. So like when somebody heals somebody of an earache, that's like one point. And uh, bringing somebody back from the dead is like 50 points or something. And what they're saying is, okay, there's going to be so many small miracles out there that like, the point total will add up to be more than what Jesus did in his life on the earth, and therefore you're going to do greater works. That just seems like a stretch. I don't know. That doesn't seem the most natural way uh, to interpret the text. I get it. Jesus has done great things through his people through the years, but I don't think he's talking about the quantity of works here because it's an individualized promise. Here's the last option. The most natural way to understand greater here is greater in effect. Greater in effect, in result. You say, well, how in the world would what we do now, here and now, be greater in effect than what Jesus did there and then? Well, all those deeds performed by Jesus were signs pointing to the salvation provided by God in Christ. Didn't I just say that? We've said it over and over again. But I want you to think about something. How effective were those signs when Jesus first did them? If the point of the signs, hang with me here, if the point of the signs was to point to God's salvation in Christ, think about it. How effective really was Jesus' signs before his resurrection? Do you remember what happened when he turned the water into wine? Remember all those people that came to Jesus? You don't. Because they didn't come to Jesus. Nothing happened. I mean, he turned the water in their wine. Some of the disciples saw it. But there's no saving response. Do you remember when he healed that, that little boy from a great distance before he ever got there? 
The disciples saw it. The father saw it. He believed. But did it lead to this like widespread revival of saving faith in Jesus? No, it did not. Let me give you one more example. The feeding of the 5,000, the biggest of those miracles. 5,000 people see him supernaturally generate matter. And you would think, revival, this is a recipe for revival. If we would have this, if this really happens, there's going to be at least 5,000, maybe 20,000 because of women and children, people who are coming to faith in Jesus. And do you want to know what 20,000 people did on those planes that day? They didn't say, yes, Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the Son of God. Come and save us from our sins. They said, free food, you should be king. And they decided that they wanted to make him the king of the empire. The works that Jesus did, as amazing as they were, actually didn't have the same kind of effect that the works that we would do as his people would have in bringing people to Jesus. It was only after his resurrection that all of those signs would begin to make sense. They would see him as one who died for their sin, one who rose again. What we really needed was salvation from God the Father, provided through God the Son, and now the good works that we do point to that, and very effectively, very effectively. People see and read what they see in the Word of God as we share it with them, and they're converted, they're saved. They, they come to a saving understanding of who God is, not just seeing the Son as some kind of miraculous miracle worker. We see it here on a regular basis. We just saw it last week in baptism. People are regularly being converted. How? Why? What is it that they saw? Did they see an amazing fireworks show from the pastor's hands? Did they see him do mind tricks? No. They saw faithful Christians living out their lives in holiness and love with others. And they're like, something's different about those people. They wanted to know more. And they were genuinely converted. We get to have a greater effect on account of what Jesus has done. This is the way that he set it up. Notice this. He says, why are you going to have this effect? Look at your text. Because I am going to the Father. Jesus' message would now be radically vindicated, validated by the fact that he overcame death, rose again, and returned to the Father. People were like, wow, he really is who he said he was. And now they're willing to listen and to believe. Friend, let me bring it to the practical. That was the hard mental part. All is well from this point forward. You can chill. Let me bring this to bear on us. All of this was to encourage and assure these disciples of Jesus and anyone thinking about being a follower of Jesus that they would get to take part in his amazing ministry to the world. Friends, when you follow Jesus in faith alone, you get to continue in an even greater way the work that Jesus set in motion. It's like a father starting a business and doing all that hard work to like get it to where it could finally succeed and then turning it over to his son. And why does the son succeed? It's because of the previous work of the father. In this case, Jesus did all the work. Ephesians 2.20 says he laid the foundation, and now we get to take a part of building on that. He's done that which is essential, and now we get to engage 
and we get to do it effectively. We get to do this. If we believe in Jesus, this is our role to point more and more people to Jesus as the provision of God's salvation. Let this blow your mind for a moment. Also, let this inform your contemplation of following Jesus. There may be some of you who are in the room today who are like, I really am thinking about this Jesus thing. I really am thinking about following Him, believing in Him, trusting in Him. Let me just let you you know ahead of time what you're signing up for. You're not signing up for Jesus to advance your agenda. You're signing up to advance His. I don't care what you heard on the radio or the TV or what you saw on some social media thing. You would be, and if you're in a saving relationship with Jesus, you're about His glory, not your own. You're about his work, not yours. So many, so many want Jesus because they think that he will make their business better and he will make their marriage better and he will make their their inner emotional life better. That may be true. That may be true. But the only thing that you're guaranteed is that you're going to do the greater works that point to Jesus as God's provision of salvation. Like that's what you're signing up for. So John's giving us a heads up, like, hey, before you say, I believe in Jesus, know what you're believing in, what you're trusting in. And then there's a third part. Let this inform our understanding of people who claim to be his followers. I say this to the church family, to those of you who are in Christ. Look, every Tom, Dick, or Harry on the street can claim to be a Christian. But if you want to know if they really are genuine, if they're really authentic, Just find out if they're actually about the Father's work. I get it. Anybody can say that. It's the weirdest thing. Like watching, (laughs) I was watching the Super Bowl last Sunday, and, and I'm thinking about like, this official merchandise, like the football has like a hologram in it. The, each of the jerseys have like a special microchip in it. So, that, you know, this is official merchandise. Like they don't want anyone to be able to fake the fact that they are a Kansas City chief. They're just they're faking it. Like, what? Do you have the, the official? You played? Like, there has to be some way to validate that. And it's just a stinking football game. And yet, when it comes to the most significant thing in all of eternity, somebody says they're a Christian, you're like, hmm, I guess you are. If I tell you that I play for the Kansas City Chiefs, you're like, no, prove it. If I tell you I'm a Christian, you're like, oh, well, I need to believe you. What Jesus says is that those who are truly Christians are about the Father's business, and they are obsessed with making Jesus look good. That's what a true believer is. They will be about this, not they can be. This is who we are. This is our obsession. So how does this happen? You should be pretty uh, discouraged by this point of hearing all this stuff that should be happening and you don't feel like it is happening. And you're like, what? Um, all right, even if I do buy into the fact that my work should be about God's salvation being made known in Jesus, how in the world do I go about it? Jesus makes it so stinking simple. Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So what's the trick to effective work for God in Jesus' absence? Asking. Asking. You just got to ask. 
specifically asking in his name. Let the simplicity of that promise wash over you for a moment. Whatever it is that you need to do to see God glorified in Jesus, you just ask him for it, and he does it. It's like a blank check. Wouldn't you like one of those? Blank check. But keep in mind that this check is from and for the company. It's a company check. It's from and for the kingdom. It's from the company's bank account, the kingdom's bank account, and it is for the company's bank account, the kingdom's bank account. It is not for you. So it is indeed a blank check, but it's a company check. Blank check? Where do I get that? Blank check? Look at the text. Whatever you ask, I will do. If you ask me anything, I will do it. That's a blank check, friends. Whatever, anything. Now notice the fine print, the the company logo. In my name, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, in my name. You see it? Blank check, whatever you want. Company bank account, in my name. Father may be glorified in the Son, in my name. As tax season once more encroaches upon us, we all know, or at least should know, the difference between personal spending and business spending. Those of you who are entrepreneurs, I say this kindly, uh, y'all blur the lines a little more. But for, for those who belong to like, other like, companies that they themselves are not in charge of, there should be clear delineation between what you're spending for yourself, what you're spending for the company. And basically, when you are authorized to spend on behalf of the company, um, you do stuff in their name. You do stuff by them. You do stuff for them. That's what it means to operate in the name of another. You do it by them. You do it for them. How do you do it by them? Well, when granted authority on behalf of the business to spend its money, they are, in effect, letting you operate in their name. You're drawing on that which they have secured or provided. You get to spend their resources. It's by them, right? By them. That's partly of what it means to be in the name of another. It's by them. But notice this. It's not just from the company bank account, but it's for them. You have to be able to justify how it would advance the company. You're withdrawing their money and using their resources to advance their interests. While you may be personally interested in X, Y, Z, they're interested in A, B, C, and therefore you're not operating in their name unless you're using the resource for what they want it for. Now apply that to prayer. This is how the promise works. We get to take part in the greater God-glorifying works And anything and everything that would glorify the Father and the Son, anything and everything that would make God look good in Christ is an approved expense. We just have to ask Him for it. And when we do it in His name, we're doing it by Him. We know that whatever's going to happen is going to happen because Jesus Himself has provided it. And we're doing it for Him. We're doing it for his fame, not our own. And this is where the rubber meets the roads, friends, because that changes a whole heap of prayers that I've been praying in the last year. 
So often I ask God to advance my interests and not his own. And yet, you know what I do because I was, grown, I was raised in a good old-fashioned Southern Baptist church. Southern comma Baptist, not Southern Baptist. I know better than to just say amen. You've got to say in Jesus' name amen. And how many times do I just keep praying for that stuff that I want, the things that I think will make me look good, the things that I think will make me comfortable and make me happy? And still add those little words on to the end in Jesus' name and think that I fulfill the promise of this passage. Absolutely not. We would do better to just stop saying those words and follow the principle. Forget the prescription. If you think, oh, got this covered, I always say in Jesus' name when I close my prayers, I'm good. You're not. Just stop saying it. Do not say that unless you're spending by him and for him. That's what it means. We'd be better off not praying unless we're going to use it for his glory. Some have abused this promise and twisted it for their own sinful and selfish purposes, thereby undermining all of its potency for us all. And I just say this now. I don't have to give graphic examples, but there are two movements that are out there, and I'll just use a couple different words. Hopefully, it'll captivate your attention so you can help brothers or sisters or maybe even deceived individuals who may be in this, and that is the Word of Faith movement. And another one that's cropped up recently is called the Visualization Movement. A Word of Faith is the old school name it, claim it kind of thing. It always comes around with like different figures and personalities. I can't even keep up with it anymore. But the idea is typically that, hey, it's not just uh, for him, it's by him. To pray in Jesus' name is just to take advantage of his resources. So we need to take the company bank account, the kingdom bank account, and use it for whatever we want. So you want to be healed of a certain malady? Name it, claim it. You want better intimacy in your marriage? Name it, claim it. Uh, You want... Uh, to actually be a billionaire, name it, claim it. Why limit yourself? Like just whatever God, you know, it, the sky's the limit. And then some people are like, yeah, that's a little too much. We know that that's not what the scriptures say. That's kind of outlandish. But there has been this subtler thing that like starts redefining like success in the Christian life as material success. And people say things like, you just need to visualize the future uh, that God wants you to have. You need to see in faith what what God wants you to have. You speak your reality into existence. Friends, that is not praying in Jesus' name. That's not in the Bible. It's not true. Jesus is not like the cosmic vending machine satisfying your snack urges. We're talking about the kingdom bank account, and therefore, whatever it is that he provides is for the agenda of the king. And so he says, hey, pray in my name. And here's the great news. Like, we get to avail ourselves of this. We get to ask for whatever we need in Christ's name, and he will do it. Can I help you with this practically, friends? This is why, I want to explain something to you. This is why we pray so much around here. Like, if I were to take... If I were to take out the sermon and I would just like to think the percentages of what took place before the sermon started today, I would say that 60% of it was prayer. Two songs were prayers, 
Rob prayed for an extended period of time, which I thought was fantastic. And I get it. I've got little kids sitting beside me. I'm trying to teach them what it's like to try to stay engaged in prayer. But you know why I do that? Because prayer is the means by which God does His work. What else are we going to do while we're gathered together? We've got stuff we're trying to do. Like Jesus has entrusted us with His kingdom. Like we've got to pray. You know, by the way, and this is not a like secret, you know, nudge you into guilt kind of thing, but we, we start praying together at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. Some people are serving in other ways, but I'm telling you, friends, it is helpful. It is so helpful to get together and pray. And we do that corporately, but of course we do that personally as well. You, you have needs. You think that Jesus would be glorified if this or that would happen, if that person would be saved, if this uh, particular sin would be overcome, uh, if this situation would iron out. Like, pray for it. Ask Him for it. Ask Him in His name. Ask confidently. Pray personally. But I want to give you two warnings in availing yourselves of this particular resource of prayer. Let me shepherd you for a moment, very practically. First, it's harder than you think. Here I am saying, all right, just cash the check. Just, cash, just write out the check, cash the check. I, let me warn you of something. I know you think taking a check to the bank is easy, but it's a little harder than you think. <laughs> Do you remember back in the days before we had mobile deposit? Like now it's just like, but it used to be like you get let these checks like stack up and you're like, man, I need to go to the bank. I need to go to the bank. Until you get desperate, and then you go to the bank. You know, like, it's, it's a little harder than you think to actually cash the check. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way in his book, Pathway to Prayer. Here's something we all have learned from experience. There is nothing, in a sense, which is so difficult as just to pray. There are many difficulties in it. These things tend to happen because prayer is the supreme activity of the human soul. It is the highest point we ever reach in this life communion with God. As we engage in prayer, all the forces of hell are playing upon us, and they are doing their utmost to spoil our efforts. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you have found prayer difficult. Like, it's hard? Yeah, it is. It's harder than you think. But I'm going to contradict myself on purpose. I would like to call this a paradox. You can just say it's nonsense. But here's my second piece of advice. It's easier than you think. It's easier than you think. It's harder than you think, but it's also easier than you think. I continued reading through this book devotionally, and the guy is, is giving some good advice for praying together in the community. And he does this, this awesome advice from a seasoned saint a hundred years ago. He says, It will happen again and again that the person who is charged with offering prayer for a fellowship will not feel at all in the spiritual mood to do so. Anybody ever there? You just don't feel like you're in the mood to pray? Oh, two of us? Okay. (laughs) We got some problems, friends. (laughs) He'll not feel like it, and he'll much prefer to turn over this task to another day. But such a shift is not advisable, however. Otherwise, the prayer will be too easily governed by moods which have nothing to do with the spiritual life. It is precisely when a person who is borne down by inner emptiness and weariness or a sense of personal unworthiness feels that he would like to withdraw from the task, that he should learn what it means to have a duty to perform it. 
Have you thought about that? When you least feel like praying is actually when you most need to. Because prayer is not an ecstatic emotional experience. It is simply entreating the Father with that which you need. I don't know about you, but typically... When I'm asking somebody for something, I'm not thinking, oh, I so desperately want to ask them. That's like like the cry of my heart. I love asking people for something. Like, who likes that? We're dependent. We want to be strong. We don't like asking for stuff. And so I was telling you, like, man, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite and pray when I'm not in the mood to. Who cares? Just pray in Jesus' name. You know, I don't know how your financial experience has been, but I know something true, at least in my own. The checks that I take to the bank cash, regardless of my mood. And the prayers that I pray to the Father will also be answered. Your mood's got nothing to do with it. So Jesus' death and departure secured for us the divine help of prayer, but that's not all. There's another help. We call this one enabled obedience through the Spirit. Enabled obedience through the Spirit. Here's your next assurance. Enabled obedience through the Spirit. The first one was effective service through prayer. Here he's going to assure you in one more way Enabled obedience through the Spirit. I'm going to do this quickly. Don't worry. I know what time it is. There is um, much more opportunity for us to spend on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in days ahead. It comes up over and over again throughout the discourse. So I decided to invest my time this morning on that which I thought would be most difficult for us. But I don't want to neglect this assurance because Jesus puts it here. So let's look at it quickly. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, Jesus is continuing to assure them. He just assured them that, hey, you're going to be able to ask for what you need to in prayer. Now he's going to assure them with something else. He assumes something. Notice notice what he assumes. He assumes that those who are trusting in him, those who are following him, are also those who, as the text says, love him. He says, if you love him, if you love him, you'll obey his commandments. So there's two results of those who love him. Now, I want to get into all the theological weeds of who loved who first. The book of John will make it crystal clear, God loved us first. <laughs> but he's saying, when, you, when that's reciprocated and you show love to God, when he is your highest joy and pleasure, when you are, are, are like truly wanting to do what he wants to do, you're going to express this in a certain way, right? Like if, if I love my wife in a certain way, certain actions will, will flow from that. He's saying there's a couple things that will flow from this love that you reciprocate back to me. Uh, The first one is that you'll obey. You'll obey the things that I've commanded you. And you're like, wow, that's a lot. Um, 
He's, he's commanded a lot. Well, if you keep it confined to the Gospel of John, let's just say that you're reading this book and no other, he actually hasn't commanded that much. He's only commanded a couple things so far on the horizontal plane, and that is to love other people sacrificially, to wash their feet, to serve them, love and serve others. And you know what the other commands are in the book of John? You can read the whole book for all the imperatives, for all the demands. The majority of them are this, believe in me, trust in me, abide in me, rest in me. So you've got two things really that are going on in the commands here. One is to find your greatest joy and satisfaction in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The second is to show that to other people through selfless service. You know, it sounds oddly like what Jesus said the great commandments were, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just simplify quickly, because I know we could get overwhelmed by the sheer number, the commandments that we're actually expected to obey. We'll limit it to two. One is find your highest joy in Jesus as God. The second is to selflessly show that to others. He says, hey, you love me? That's what you'll be about. You'll continue to like show your allegiance to me and trust in me and rely upon me, and you'll reflect that to others in selfless service. And, and we hear that, and we're like, that just seems a little overwhelming, even if I get the number down to two. Like, it still says love God with all your heart. It still says love people as Christ has loved us. Like, that's a lot. I don't know that I could do that. Anybody? Well, I'm not going to ask because you aren't being honest today. So don't raise your hand. But does anybody ever feel that way? Like, I don't know that I'm cut out for this. I don't know that I could actually obey all these commands. Good news. He says, if you love me, if you're one of those that love me, one of those who are trusting in me, I will ask the Father, not you're going to ask, this is not about your prayers, this is what Jesus will do. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Another helper. Two things to notice. One is the word another. Another. Some of people will try to brag about how much they know about the Bible, and they know the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. They may even say the Greek word, parakletos. Like, I know who the Holy Spirit is. I know who the paraclete is. There isn't the paraclete. There's paracletes, <laughs> and I don't mean shoes. That's a dad joke. That was a total dad joke. Preacher dad joke. There's one paraclete who is Jesus. He was a helper. And what he do? He guided them. He was with them. He empowered them. He taught them. And he says, I'm going to give you another one, another paraclete, another helper. So it's another helper. And then we just need to zoom in on this word, last scholarly thing we do, kind of. What, what, in what way is the Spirit a helper? When I hear the word helper, I typically think of like, I, I hate to say this, but I think of like daddy's little helper. You know, I think of somebody coming alongside and like helping me out, you know, with a project. When you think of helper, you think of a peer. I don't know that helper is the best word. I get it. I'm not a Greek scholar. But to, to prove that this is a difficult issue, I just want you to know like all the major translations come up with different stuff here. They don't know how to interpret parakletos. So like the ESV and the NASB do helper. But like I said, it suffers from the deficiency of seeming like it's a peer. So the, the King James, which I grew up with and loved, is, well, I'll get off on that. I love the King James, and uh, it used the word comforter. And you're like, oh, I like that one. But it kind of lacks authority. 
When I think of a comforter, I think of a big old fuzzy blanket. Or I think of a really mushy person that's just good at entering into your life in tough times. I don't think the Spirit is that. The, the word comforter, by the way, from the King James, it's good Elizabethan English. It came from the, the Latin word confortare, con to be with, and then fort, fortify, strength. To come aside with strength. It's like uh, to encourage, to pour strength into. So comfort didn't just mean like to pet someone when they were in distress, but it actually meant to like steal their spine, to give them strength. So our word for comfort doesn't really convey that. And then you've got one more that some other translations use, advocate, advocate. And you hear advocate, you're like, ooh, I know what that means. It's official, it's legal, it's a lawyer. Yes, he's our lawyer. And there's senses in which the Spirit will serve as our legal advocate. But the word isn't always used or limited to a legal context. So advocate probably isn't the best word either. You're like, okay, Justin, well, you've ruled out all the major words. Where are you going to go with? I'm going to go with two words. This may help you. Who is the Spirit? He is another authoritative helper authoritative helper. That's what Jesus was, right? Jesus was not just their buddy. He wasn't just like stroking their hair when their day was hard. He wasn't just a lawyer. Jesus was an authoritative helper for them. The Spirit is going to be another authoritative helper for them. Like, he's actually going to move in and help them in their time of need in authoritative ways, in strong ways. And that's what we now have. This is good news, friends, because sometimes you need help. (laughs) You need help. And every once in a while, we need help with something that, like, just any old person can help us out with. Like, sometimes you just need the help of YouTube. Just watch the YouTube video, see what the do-it-yourself guy did, you can copy it. I've done many a YouTube repair. There's some repairs that actually require not just the help of another, like informationally, but a help of another interpersonally. Like if you've ever mounted a TV on a wall, that's not a one-man job. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to be operating the other side of the TV, You don't have to have an authority, but you do need another help. That's not what's being provided here. We're not just talking about another collaborator coming along. What we're talking about is the help that you need for the stuff that you yourself know you can't do. Just the ongoing drama of home renovation. In my life right now, electrical. I'm not watching any YouTube videos on that. I don't care. I'm not frying myself. Like, that's when I'm calling in the authoritative help. Thank God for authoritative, authoritative help in matters of electricity. And thank God for authoritative help in matters of eternal significance. That's what the Spirit is. It says, the Spirit, He's another comforter. I, I'm going to give Him to you. You don't even have to ask. I'm going to ask. He's going to be with you. And listen to this. Who is He? He's even the Spirit of truth. How does He work The Spirit works by confirming truth for us. You know what gets us in so much trouble, friends, when we're trying to live lives of obedience to Jesus? It's error, wrong. 
I mean, we've seen it. You've got things like fake news. You've got people writing fake prescriptions for medicine. You know what it's like for people just to lie to your face about a service contract or an agreement. It causes all kinds of chaos, all kinds of destruction. Lies will mess you up. And guess what the Spirit does? He confirms for you truth. And that is what you need more than anything else. He is working in the realm of truth, providing you all that you need to know to be able to obey everything that Jesus would ever command of you. And we're to have confidence because like, there's a certain group of people who do have the Spirit and a certain group of people that don't. Notice the text. He says, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. They, they don't know of the Spirit's enablement. They don't know of His truth. They can't, as the text says, see Him or know Him. But that is simply to contrast this, you know Him. Let's southernize it. Y'all know Him, for He dwells with y'all and will be in y'all. I, I, I do that. Not because I like bragging that I'm from the South. I do that because sometimes the, the ministry of the Spirit gets really privatized and really personal. Like, oh, I have the Spirit. You know, we have the Spirit. I don't, this building, by the way, I'll just say this as a thing because we're praying about a building. It's not a sanctuary. It's a building. But you know what's going on today? is a sanctuary. It's a holy gathering because... The Spirit is here among us. We take the same thing and we move it out to the parking lot. It's a sanctuary because the Holy Spirit is living within us. The Spirit, the way that He works, is personally showing us truth individually, but also corporately together. It is something that is only reserved for God's people. Those who love Him, those who believe in Him, those are the ones who know His Spirit. He said, well, how, how, do I, how do I avail myself of this? What, what do I do to have the Spirit's help? Hear me, friends, and we conclude with this. You already have it. You already have it. God help us. I mean this. So often, and I don't know where it came from. I'm not a good church historian. But so often we're like praying and like begging the Spirit to come down and do something. And the text says, He already came down. He's already given you the Spirit. He's already there. I think it's because most people treat the Spirit like an it and not a who. And when you treat the Spirit like an it, you treat it like, like the gas in your car. And you think that you need a fill-up. You need a fill-up of the Spirit. Because of Ephesians 5, 18, and 19, for example. But I want to make something really clear for you. You already have the Spirit. You have all of the Spirit you need. The question is, how much does He have you? The Ephesians 5 passage, be filled with the Spirit, is paralleled in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, which reads this way, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Letting the Word of Christ dwell in you and letting the Spirit control you are one and the same. You already have it. You already have the Word of Christ. You already have the, the ongoing ministry of the Spirit. You have that which you need. You say, I, I, don't, I don't feel any different. I don't know it. Because you're so used to it. You've forgotten what it's like to not be able to thrive and function spiritually. I'll tell you this quick story, and I finish. 
Just the other day, I had the opportunity to visit an older uh, saint who used to come to our church but cannot come anymore. She hasn't been able to come in the last six years. And she was at a very nice retirement center. I mean very nice. I'm walking around thinking, hmm. (laughs) Not a bad option. But you know what also struck me? No one who was in that retirement center could enjoy walking like I could. No one. When I got there to the room, I realized that she couldn't get up very much on her own. She couldn't even open her hands in ways that uh, you and I would be able to open our hands. And you just, you just forget what you got. You know the old saying? You don't know what you got till it's gone. Friends, you're just presuming all this stuff that the Spirit does, like you just always had it. But there was a point when you did not. The fact that we know the truth of the gospel is the work of the Spirit. The Christ-like changes occurring ever so gradually in us are the fruit of the Spirit. The relational oneness that we enjoy with other believers from so many walks of life and so many different personalities is the work of the Spirit. The conversions that we see among family and friends are the work of the Spirit. The perseverance that you exhibit in the most insane and intense of trials is enabled by the Spirit. Because we do not recognize the actual work of the Spirit in the Bible, we get bored and start looking for other stuff. But I'm telling you, friends, He is already in you and working in you and enabling you. And we should rest in that. I leave you with with just three admonitions. One, in light of these assurances, entrust yourself to God. Some of you are here and you have yet to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You have yet to place your faith in Him on account of His death for you and His resurrection on your behalf, ensuring you life. Enter in. I know you may be intimidated by the commands and you may be intimidated by the prospect of representing Him, but He will enable you. It's not about you. Enter in and trust yourself to him. Second, avail yourself of prayer. Friends, it is not the great obligation, it is the great opportunity. And if you're struggling to do it alone, I'm not kidding. If you're struggling to do it alone, come do it together. I say it to the group back here on a regular basis. I actually feel like that I pray more effectively, more cognizantly, more disciplinedly, if I make up another word, when I'm with other people praying out loud than when I do when I'm by myself, because my mind is relentless and running in other directions. Avail yourself of prayer, and if you need to do it in a group, do it. Lastly, enjoy. Oh, enjoy the Spirit that you already have. It is Him who is confirming truth in you today, convicting you of subtle things. He is already at work among us. This is the assurance from God. Let's pray and then sing a song of thanksgiving. Father, we've prayed. We've prayed appropriately for the Spirit to be at work among us. And yet, in that, we're only acknowledging that indeed the Spirit is already at work among us. You've already sent Him. And I trust that He is even here now, or challenging, convicting saints and sinners to come to faith in Jesus.
So we trust that you'll do that convicting work. And I ask now that as we transition from this gathering to our ordinary work week, that we would represent you well with full confidence and dependence upon you in prayer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.